I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing David Michaelis, author of a wonderful new biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, which came out October 6, 2020. And we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on February 3, 2021. Enjoy. everybody. This wonderful book, Eleanor, came out in the fall. It's gotten huge reviews. It's endorsed by the likes of Walter Isaacson, Michael Beschloss, Ted Widmer, who you'll recall spoke to our group, who wrote the wonderful book about Lincoln on the Verge. The author, David Michaelis, is our guest, and I found out about the book and David from my great friend Robbie Briggs. Robbie and his wife uh, have a home in Maine that's in the same village where David has a home. And so <clears throat> they become friends and other people who reside in that village. Interestingly enough, uh, another person is a guy named John Roberts, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so it might, you almost have very interesting dinner parties there. But uh, David, uh, this is his third uh, major biography. Uh, the other two, N.C. Wyeth, the f illustrator, the father of Andrew Wyeth, and Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. Uh, so, David, welcome to the Turtle Creek Men's uh, Breakfast Club. Um, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Honor to be here. So, David, I'm always uh, intrigued with what people put in the acknowledgments of their book. And one of the things that you put is that when you were four years old, you actually met Eleanor Roosevelt. So describe that encounter. Uh, 1961, or just about, uh, my mother uh, was a producer on Eleanor Roosevelt's television program on the public television station in Boston, WGBH. This was just before WGBH and public television had its first really big hit with a tall lady with a uh, high fluty voice, namely uh, Julia Child. This was just before that. It was very the infancy of public television. And Eleanor Roosevelt once a month would gather on air with the likes of young Henry Kissinger, uh, who was teaching at Harvard, or young Senator John Kennedy, about whom Eleanor was pretty suspicious because of his uh, uh, lack of backbone on, on Joe McCarthy. She would say, uh, you know, would that the senator had had uh, a, bit, a bit less profile and a bit more courage. Uh, she was sharp. She was uh, very um, measured in her uh, uh, listening. She shocked um, in, in the way she would listen to her guests, which would be an hour. Well, it doesn't look at all like television today, needless to say. It looks like an old graduate seminar. Uh, at, at, at a very learned institution is going on on the air. She shocked uh, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, one day by essentially saying that she would rather be dead than read. She had much more of the Theodore Roosevelt notion uh, about how to deal with communi communist Russia, Soviet Russia, uh, than, than you would have been, than people suspected at the time of, a, of a, the avatar of liberalism. She, she was tough with the Soviets um, and she was tough on the air. Um, that's the background, really, of the show, which was called Prospects of Mankind. And I happened to be a, a four-year-old who probably put up such a fuss on the day that I ended up getting to go to the studio that my mother helplessly uh, took me along. 
And all I remember in real time, I mean, in, in a real sense of, of, of a real memory uh, rather than family lore being told to me, because I do remember being uh, on a, in a place where lots of cables were snaking along the floor and looking up and seeing this white haired, uh, uh, well, a, a, a legend coming toward, toward where I was standing. And I remember having a sense that I should ask her for something, um, which is telling because I think instinctively everybody asked Eleanor Roosevelt for something by that point. And I at four had no, no doubts about what I wanted. And I <clears throat> blurted out uh, the only two words that could come, that came to mind, which were juicy fruit. And I remember her amusement that she was being asked for a stick of gum. And I also very, very definitely emotionally remember this sense of this really quite lovely woman leaning down to me in a very sympathetic way about this need of, of, of a stick of chewing gum. And out of her eyes, which were at rest or in, in sadness or grief. They were sort of like sea glass. They were sort of opaque, not at that moment, obviously, but in general, her, her eyes would transfer, transform from being somewhat opaque blue gray to when she was delighted, they would just sparkle. There was sort of like sun sparkle on water. And at that moment, a kind of light came out of her eyes that I remember as a four-year-old feeling in some way intellectualizing to myself, that's what goodness is. You know, that, that's what a good person looks like. They have light pouring out of their eyes. And so that was all. It was a moment of thinking, my gosh, th th this is goodness. This is, this is real. This is someone real and good who, who cares in some way. And that was it. And uh, I encountered that sensation again, actually, when I, I literally the day I met Andrew Wyeth, who also uh, lived in um, the town where Robbie Briggs and I uh, and our wives have a place in Maine, the Wyeths um, of, of, of Chad's Ford would go to Port Clyde in the summertime. I met Andrew Wyeth in, in Chad's Ford. And the day I met him, he, an artist, had a habit of looking very closely at people when he met them, I think, uh, or were, wanted to find out something. Eleanor also was an observer of the same kind, a very intense observer. And out of Andrew Wyatt's eyes, the first day I met him, came the same kind of intense pouring of light uh, and, and of interest and of sympathy and of a kind of humanity. Um, and so that uh, was another part of that same sequence that then ended for me in the basement of 200 Madison Avenue, which was the place where Schultz's syndicate had its records for peanuts. And strangely enough, when I was given the permission to go down there to look at the early correspondence of business correspondence of peanuts uh, from United Feature Syndicate, there next to Schultz alphabetically was R, Roosevelt. And it was just by chance that I pulled out these long galleys of Eleanor Roosevelt's My Day column syndicated by the same syndicate, United Feature. And I had this sudden sense, this was 2001, of um, thinking, my gosh, I didn't realize she had written this way about this many subjects. And that was another early trigger that, that got me going on to, on to Eleanor uh, as a subject. Now, besides the acknowledgments, I always uh, pay special attention uh, to the epigraph, uh, because often that's the key to unlock the book. And you chose for your epigraph a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt herself, who once said, I felt obliged to notice everything. 
So when in, and in what context did she say that? And why did that grab you so hard? She said it in, in, late, in later life um, in a letter, and she dis- was describing something that I think is the, the key to understanding why she was able to become who she became. And it's that I think she took a, a ref- I think every time she met a, a person, an individual, she refreshed her interest in humanity as a whole by finding in that individual something, the one thing about that person that she could learn from. And she instinctively felt that her job as a beta, I mean, if, if, if FDR was the alpha, she was going to be the beta in that partnership. And a lot of her partnerships did seem to place her in the second banana role, and in, which is a pretty convenient spot from which to look at the world, because you get to see a lot more when the alpha is performing and doing all the things alphas do the betas get to look a little more carefully at the landscape, at the battlefield, at the opponent, at the way the game is being played. Eleanor had this, and I heard it over and over again from people who had known her. She stared at you. She looked very, very carefully at people as she was meeting them, as she was around them. And she, I remember Gore Vidal, just before he died in an interview he gave me, spoke about how unnerving it was actually in, in, a, in a situation where you'd look over it and you'd see that she was just, she was fixed on you and she was observing you. And I found that a very telling, you, you keep looking, for instance, at her, it, I kept looking at her daily column, which was started in 1935 and she missed four days when FDR died in, 44, in 45. Uh, and she continued it every single day to 62. That and as well as the book she wrote and, and especially the letters she wrote every day, she is writing in some way about the things she's seeing. And you can't imagine that a, a single person could get not just that much of her observations down on paper, but that she could observe so much and that she would. I mean, we all see things as we go about our days, but we don't much we, we don't recognize that we're seeing all the things we're seeing. We don't absorb it and evaluate it and and, and record. We certainly don't record it, uh, most of us. But there was a obligation. And it's, it's really the sense in that quote of her feeling obliged, her job, her duty, her service to people was going to be in seeing carefully the truth of them, see the truth of the situation, understand and recognize what was really happening rather than what people wanted you to think was happening or um, what might be uh, uh, imagined was happening. Mm -hmm. Now, for her upbringing, Eleanor Roosevelt had what could accurately be called the parents from hell. (laughs) Uh, Describe the effect that her wretched, cold mother, Anna, and her irresponsible, ultimately suicidal father, Elliot, who is Theodore Roosevelt's brother, had on her during a childhood that she later called one long battle against fear. Yeah. Um, She was, um, she was beloved by, by her father and she was uh, abhorred by her mother because she did not with her mother. Her mother was uh, known as the second most beautiful woman in New York. The first most beautiful being Mrs. Astor, who had to be called uh, the, the first most beautiful woman. And so uh, Anna Hall Roosevelt was really getting 
um, the prize there. She was so vain of her position uh, as a, um, she, well, he, Anna, Anna Hall Roosevelt's family had been very rich in New York in, 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 in the world just before the industrial age brought us the railroads, the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, and, 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 and the big world uh, that now Anna's family was falling out of. Anna wanted very much to be part of that new world. So anything old, anything that looked as if it was part of this old fading world was not to her liking. And Eleanor, she always called granny, which really meant in the case that she was solemn, that she was old, stern, and that she was going to be in some way or other, not what Anna Roosevelt, not a, not a, not a perfect image of Anna and what Anna wanted. She was going to be more of a Roosevelt rather than a Hall. And I think with Elliot, um, it is the daughter of a man who was a child most of his life, who was an addict, um, who was a um, dreamer, who became the adult herself in order to take care of him. It's a very familiar character from Dickens. It's, 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 it's really Little Nell in, in Curiosity Shop taking care of her grandfather. Eleanor became the, you know, sort of the super, the super grown-up um, as a child, that sort of um, a wise child character. And then as an orphan, then became the sort of classical character of, of, of so many uh, of our fictions where she literally had to figure out how to go about creating a life on her own under some supervision from her grandparents and ne'er-do-well uncles and aunts, but she was on her own. And by the time uh, she was 10 years old, she was an orphan. Mm -hmm. Now, before Eleanor turned 15, right before, she went to a French boarding school outside of Paris, and the headmistress, a woman named Marie Souvestri, who was a lesbian, uh, had a huge mentoring impact on Eleanor for the next uh, four years. So, so what did Eleanor gain from headmistress Souvestri? Well, when she went to Allenswood School outside of London, where um, her aunt, Teddy Roosevelt's sister, Anna, had been a favorite when the school was actually at that time in France, but it had, was moved to England, uh, women's education was seen as actually potentially threatening to women's mental health. Uh, women who were educated were seen as potentially going to go crazy from, from knowledge, from from, from becoming empowered by, by an education. Marie Souvest was of a new breed of educator who told young women, especially young women of privilege, uh, coming from various families across Europe. Eleanor was one of only several Americans at the school. Most of them were from Germany or uh, Greece or, or Italy uh, or, or France that she had a mind of her own, that she could think, that she had worthwhile thoughts, that she must understand her relationship to the world and that she should have an opinion about things that were going on in the world. At that time, the Boer War uh, was going on and uh, Marie Souvest was enraged by the position of England in the war uh, in South Africa and let it be known to the girls that she had these strong opinions and that they should have their own. And Eleanor, developed both a sense as, again, she was sort of the, the young adult. Um, she was more fluent in French, which was the rule of the school that you should speak French all through the day. Um, then her peers, she sort of became the go-between between her peer group, an international set of young privileged girls 
and and this powerful, uh, as you say, um, lesbian uh, uh, educator who chose a favorite every year, kind of chose the the one who was going to go forward into the world and sort of represent the school and represent her. And Eleanor became, of course, that favorite. Um, and it set her up in a way for her in, in a very small sort of paradigm for the kind of role she would play so often in her later life as a diplomat, um, as a go-between, understanding the two parts of a culture, uh, the two different place, two different tribes, um, a figure that you see all through history, actually, um, is the person who's going to make change in the world, is the person who understands the old and the new and can go between the two or can go between the tribes and make peace. Or um, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's, in, it's Michael Corleone, even, or it's, uh, it's Gandhi. I mean, it's, it's a classic role, and that's where she first learned it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when she was almost 18 in the fall of uh, 1902, she started seeing her cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, at debutante parties. So describe what it was that attracted them to each other. Well, they were oddballs. Um, and we sort of think of Franklin and Eleanor later as being this kind of royal pair or as kind of glamorous, charismatic people. They really started life, both of them individually, separately, uh, as oddballs in terms of their place among their peers or in the world. Um, they also met, by the way, in, their, in, in the nursery at Franklin's house when Eleanor's parents came to visit and brought uh, young um, four-year-old Eleanor, who was trotted around the nursery on Franklin's back. So that, that, they really were um, of... of, of of childhood, you know, they were childhood friends and now we're re-meeting as teenagers. And as teenagers, they were total oddballs. Um, Franklin, when he went off to Groton school or was sent off finally by his mother who had dominated his younger life and his father uh, was, who was still alive, who died when Franklin was in, at Harvard, um, was an aging and, and invalided uh, father. His, mo- the, his mother was much younger and dynamic and he had a childhood uh, that you would dream of on the Hudson uh, River uh, in, in Hyde Park and was kind of the prince, the, king, the, the young prince of the house and, and ran the show and everything was done with Franklin in mind. And when he finally went off and joined the other young men of Groton School, the boys of Groton School, he was way behind. He, he had not been sent with the, with, the, with the group, the cohort. He was two, two years back of that. They considered him spoiled, a little sissy. Uh, he tried too hard. Uh, they call, his nickname was Golden Retriever. You know, he, he was just too eager. He was always jumping up, trying to get people to do things, and, and they didn't like him. And he was not much liked at Harvard either. Uh, he was not one of the boys, and it took him a long time to, to find his way with other men. Eleanor, similarly, because of her own sense of her parents' shame, that is to say, when FDR's sorry, when Theodore Roosevelt's brother, Elliot, her father, um, ran into scandal, it was blazed across the newspapers at the time. Uh, he had fathered a child uh, on a housemaid. Uh, he, had, he was killing himself with, with uh, alcohol and, and laudanum and became a full-blown addict by the end of his life. Um, the, the newspapers kept after um, that, that story. Uh, it was constantly being whispered about or, or, or headlined. And she felt isolated, distanced from her peers, ashamed of her family, and struggled. And as a debutante, struggled very hard. 
Um, and so they were odd in, in, in their own lives. And then when they came together, they kind of made a deal, I think, in a way that they would cover for each other. And you see it even on their honeymoon when Eleanor was challenged by a woman in England um, to sort of a simple question of what's the difference between state government and federal government um, and how do they relate to each other in the United States? And she, she couldn't answer this question. And Franklin smoothly covered for her uh, in, in a tea time sort of moment of drama for Eleanor. And he, in, in, in addressing local farmers, was asked a simple question about how um, cows or goats or something were taken care of in the United States. Couldn't say a word about this, and Eleanor knew the answer and smoothly filled in for him. And they were already covering for each other. The partnership was clearly going to be about how they would face the world together at, at each other's side. And it, it's interesting to see the the way that Eleanor's, even Eleanor's imagination about herself vis-a-vis -vis her father, she always saw herself as going, her future would be somehow going around the world with him when he was sick, she would somehow cover for him, take care of the prefiguring of the life she lived uh, and partnership she had with Franklin. Now, the story of Franklin Eleanor and his mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, is one of the most intriguing relationship triangles in history. So give Eleanor's perspective on that triangle. Well, I think most of you, most of you probably have some moment in which you were um, a young father with a child calling or crying distantly from a room and, and maybe your wife was still asleep. So it was on you to go and, and, and answer that, that cry going to a crib in the middle of the night as a parent, you're going to pick up your child or, or in some way, figure out what the, what the, what the problem is and, and do something about it. If you were Eleanor Roosevelt as a new mother and you heard the cry of your child, by the time you got to the crib, to do something about it. Not only had your mother-in-law already gotten there first, but she had already given orders to at least one nurse and your child was now being dosed with castor oil or some kind of mercury-based medicine like calomel from, from, the, from the last generation. So in, in other words, she was constantly being upstaged, um, not only as a wife, uh, because she very much felt, uh, that is to say Sarah Delano Roosevelt very much felt that she was in charge of Franklin Roosevelt, her son, and, and came first in his life, but that she also was the mother who came first with the children. So Eleanor kind of got wedged out as, as a wife. She got wedged out as a mother. And in a way, she contributed this, her, her, to this herself by not having had a mother um, uh, or losing her mother very young and having had a mother who was not very motherly before that. She threw herself at her mother-in-law and, and, and asked for this, asked for more love and attention and, and, and for her mother-in-law to play a larger role until it became unbearable. And, and then she sort of staged her own rebellions by a very poor method, which, you know, was basically free, trying, trying to freeze out everybody around her. She, she was the kind of wife or mother who, when upset, when truly hurt, would just clam up and get very cold and very quiet and not say anything for days sometimes, for weeks even. And in those cases, her own children later described how, of course, you'd then go to your grandmother who was going to buy you a pony or a new car or even just 
give you a big hug. I mean, Sarah Delano Roosevelt is is presented as a bit of a dragon mother in 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 history, but she also was very warm, and her grandchildren did love her and did find ways to um, get what they wanted from her in in the way that a child will. But she was. And she was also kind to Eleanor at times, but she was also mean and she could be brutal and she was preemptory and she wanted the power and she wanted to be the the figure in the family who was calling the shots. And with the power of the purse, that was sometimes true. She could actually do that. Um, But Eleanor too often gave in, too easily gave in, did not know what she wanted, was not clear yet as to who she was. And the early story of Eleanor Roosevelt's life is of someone who does not yet know who Eleanor Roosevelt is. And you know how complicated that is with a woman. Mm-hmm. Now, once the United States entered World War One, Eleanor Roosevelt later reflected, quote, the war was my emancipation and my education. How so? Well, in the... Uh, she wanted to go to France. I think that what a woman like Eleanor Roosevelt, the, the women uh, who gathered at a place in Washington that was sort of the, the, the fancy restaurant where when it was clear that America was going to be in the war, what would women do? And a, a, a female leader in Washington gathered the, the troops, so to speak, at uh, I can't remember the name of that place. And they all kind of discovered the same thing, which is none of them knew how to do anything that was going to be help. None of them knew, they didn't even have licenses. They couldn't become ambulance drivers. They, very few of them had nurse, as training as nurses. I'm talking about the privileged women of, of Eleanor Roosevelt's class. Um, they didn't know how to type. They didn't know how to do anything that was useful to the war, except possibly knit some socks. And even that, they weren't that, you know, some of them weren't that good. At, good at. And so they all left in horror. And Eleanor, um, most of all, she had, Franklin was then assistant secretary of the Navy and a very big job at the time. And he had been predicting that various things about the war that did come true. Um, And one of them was that the Red Cross was going to play a big part in this. And that if Red Cross nursing got overseas, that's where the action was going to be. And she very much wanted to go uh, overseas, but she had five children at that time. And she had lost one, a boy in 1909 at the age of one. So she was very sensitive about her ch- about leaving her children or, or abandoning them. So she chose not to follow several other Oyster Bay cousins, namely Te- Teddy Roosevelt Jr.'s wife, whose name was also Eleanor, Eleanor Alexander Roosevelt, overseas to, um, to some of the important nursing jobs on the front line. But she did something else that w- w- gave her a, a, a unique perspective on the war. She became the administrator that one of the chief administrators, and there were rankings, she, she rose in the ranks from sergeant to, I believe, a general, um, she, a colonel, actually. Um, she, as a Red Cross colonel, was running the canteen at Union Station. And that meant that at all hours, day and night, seven days a week, and sometimes uh, 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 for, for weeks at a time, troop trains coming from, especially from the South, uh, bearing hundreds of young men who were coming through Washington on their way to Newport News, Virginia, or other points of departure, the embarkation for overseas, were coming through a small railhead, in, I mean, through uh, the Union Station, on which, in which was a small canteen, and at that railhead, she gave you know, buns and coffee and, with a, with a, and, and managed a little cadre of, of nurses who would take uh, mail and give mail 
And she saw, in other words, the entire, uh, uh, practically the entire American expeditionary force coming through uh, her little um, world of, can of the canteen and understood what some of these, that some of these men knew nothing, that they had never been overseas, understood a lot about what it was like to go off to war from listening to them and from watching what was going on. And I think she, in the exact flip side of this, as bodies were brought home by the dozens from France, she found her duty in two things. She found it in going every single day to Arlington Cemetery where coffins were literally piling up. They couldn't do enough. They couldn't perform military funerals fast enough to cover the numbers coming home. And there were times where, uh, because of the slight disorganization or the numbers involved, families wouldn't have been notified soon enough of the date of a burial. And Eleanor took it upon herself as the wife of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy to be the official, to be the human, to be the persons who would stand at the grave while taps was blown and as the body was interred and lowered uh, to be the one person there to witness this and, and, and witness the service of, of the fallen soldier. Uh, an incredibly moving thing to her that she never forgot. She also served at St. Elizabeth's with um, the men who were suffering this new disease called shell, new, new condition called shell shock. And that, too, was an extraordinary informative moment for her of the about the 20th century and its horrors. And so she she saw the ends, the, the beginnings and the ends of war. And, and it, I think that's what she was talking about as an education. Now, now, during World War One, toward the end, I guess, in 1918, Eleanor learned that her husband was having an affair with Lucy Mercer, who had been Eleanor's uh, assistant. So how did her uh, awareness uh, of, of this affair impact the rest of their marriage? Interesting. Well, the simplest way of, of answering that is to say that she, uh, after all the drama involved, and she offered a divorce, and she, Franklin did not want a divorce for a number of reasons, and no, nor did her mother-in-law, nor did Franklin's mother want these two to divorce. She recognized in part through Lucy Mercer and, and in whole through polio, which came along very shortly thereafter in 1921 to Franklin, that she could not be for Franklin what she would like to have been or what he might have needed or wanted her to be. And in the case of a intimate partner, she could not ever be playful and easy and light and a real match for Franklin. Uh, she could not be in Franklin's distress and uh, determination after contracting polio to recover. She could not be the person he needed to teach him and to be with him as he retrained himself and retrained his body. Um, but in both cases, she became a professional. She professionalized herself both as a wife, a political wife, and as a politician in her own right. And so she became the sort of iron frame on which Franklin Roosevelt stretched his still very thin career or ambitions, his very thin capabilities to fulfill his ambitions, which were enormous. He had already determined he wanted and would be president of the United States. And marrying a Catholic, in Lucy Merther's case, a divorced, Catholic, a divorced man marrying a Catholic in, in 1918, would, would not have earned him the seat even uh, on the ticket as a vice president that he received in 1920. And so Louis Howe, their FDR's advisor, 
and, and Sarah Delano Roosevelt were both right in that Eleanor responded, I think, in a philosophical way as time went on, increasingly understanding what she could and couldn't give her husband. And she wanted very much to be loved by him herself, but knew that that wasn't going to ever take place. I think they both knew that actually from their honeymoon on, that they had enormous problems as a couple. I mean, at a very basic level, she was a relentless teller of truth or seeker of truth. And he was a continuous and very wily deceiver and often for realistic reasons. I mean, he, his, he had learned from his mother the way to, to, get, to go around his mother, to get what he needed to do, to not be under his mother's wing, was to, to fib or to tell a lie or to deceive her in some way that was not going to be harmful necessarily, but was going to get him to the place he needed to go. That was a just standard tactic of FDRs that he learned, uh, relearned actually as a recovery in recovery from polio to use to his advantage because he, he got a lot of people to understand that he wasn't going to be stopped by this and to see him not as a victim of polio, but as a still functioning, highly eligible human being, highly eligible politician, an incredible reversal. Mm-hmm. Now, your book makes it clearer than any prior uh, major biography of Eleanor Roosevelt that she was definitely bisexual and had intimate relationships with at least one woman, Lorena Hickok, and obviously she had it with her husband, Franklin, and she had many tight relations with other women and other men. So did you have any concerns or fears about revealing what you call this unambiguous fact in a major biography of Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, when I began, uh, the Google, I don't know, can't remember what it's called, but something like not autocorrect, but something correct, where if you type a sentence into Google's search um, box and say, is George Washington the next word that's most being asked by people around the world at that moment pops up and it's, is George Washington alive or is George Washington? And with Eleanor Roosevelt in 19, sorry, in 2009, the way that sentence, the way the sentence is Eleanor Roosevelt, the way that sentence was most often finished on Google was, is Eleanor Roosevelt gay? And it was the big story about her at the time because of a number of things, but very most tightly a, a scholar, Blanche Wiesen Cook, had written a biography of Eleanor that was in its second volume of, of a projected two or three volume, three or four volumes. And she had been reviewed by Jeffrey Ward, the FDR biographer, and John Updike and, uh, and Arthur Schlesinger, all of whom had taken her to task for outing Eleanor Roosevelt, for saying that Eleanor was essentially a radical lesbian feminist and that that's how we should understand Eleanor. And both sides of this story, I mean, both sides of that controversy um, were right. I mean, in one sense, on the one hand, Eleanor Roosevelt was more passionate and was did have an adaptable sexuality and had adapted her search, her own search for love and intimacy to seeking it from women. Um, That was true. But you couldn't at the same time label her as a radical or a lesbian or a feminist and see anything useful in terms of understanding her role in history based on that label, because it doesn't really get you very far. Because as you just said, for, for example, in my own understanding of it, 
I couldn't find any more than one actual relationship in which there is a record, and that's the record of her relationship with the Associated Press reporter, Lorena Hickok, whom she fell in love with and who fell in love with her in the, during the 1932 presidential campaign and whom she remained in a very intense, intimate, physical relationship right up through coming into the White House and through her first years as first lady. It, 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 it sort of faded away. They remained friends for the rest of their lives, but it faded away as an intimate and intense relationship uh, by about 1937. But I couldn't find, and there is no record of, any other relationship. She had attractions to women that seems that seem very thrilling and exciting, um, but you don't see anything like what you see in her relationship with Lorena Hickok. Um, and, and so you can't, I couldn't ever, what worried me was the whole game of labels. And, and what worried me was that I, in, in, in saying that, le, that, that I, you can't read the letters of Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt without seeing two people who are very, very intimately fond of each other and want physically and, and physically desire each other. Um, you, you just can't not see that. It's right there. It's on the page. It, it's, it's very direct. Um, yeah, you can't be in the room with them, but there's a lot of, there were a lot of episodes and behaviors that, that suggested a very intimate behind the scenes relationship, but you can't also get stuck calling her a lesbian and, and begin to embrace the politics of what that would mean in some new way, because it doesn't mean anything new. Eleanor Roosevelt as a human being always felt that the way she could find love was to be useful to the person that she loved, to serve that person, to be um, a, a, a constantly um, helpful and useful person. That, that's literally how she thought she would be loved. That comes from her relationship with her father and her childhood, and it never changed. It, and, 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 Dramatically, the very last relationship of her life with her doctor, a man, David Gurevich, a very unusual relationship. Um, he was 18 years younger, in which she wrote to him as passionately and as desirously as she had written to Lorena Hickok and, and as anybody more than anybody else in her life. And she acknowledges herself in, in these letters saying, you're, you're the person I love more than anyone uh, now and have ever loved in some sense. And I feel closer to you. And so she was bearing herself uh, to a younger man who was getting, who was divorcing, who was about to remarry and so forth and so on, forgetting all the details there. But here she was once again, and in, in an unrequited relationship or a relationship in which she was not getting um, first place, but she was helpful and she was serving and she was getting some sense of being attached and, and intimate. But here she was with a man. So in other words, there's really no way to examine or explain Eleanor's intimate life except to say that she was adaptable. And that's the way she was in the world. And that's the way she was about her suffering. And that's the way she was about her pain in general. She adapted and she transformed and she transcended. And that's really why she's a figure of authentic interest historically, much more than obviously than about her sexuality. So I worried about all that somehow coming, being, being parsed through the story in a way that was both understandable and wouldn't suddenly throw all the trip wires that are waiting, or I felt were waiting um, when you get into all the politics of, of lesbian sexuality or, or feminist sex, sexuality or whatever sexuality. Um, I, I, I was incredibly aware that we 
tend to, in our culture, see things as only one way, all one way or all the other. And I thought that would be uh, a disservice to her because I think Blanche Wiesen Cook, who herself as a, uh, as a person, as an individual, as a private individual, is a, is a lesbian, is a radical, is a lesbian um, and a feminist, all, 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 all to the good, fine. But in, in identifying Eleanor as such and, and having uh, her reviewers contradict her and, and turn controversial that subject, I think she was committing the biographer's flaw, which is allowing too much of your own sense of identity to, to define your subject. Now, one of the reasons Eleanor Roosevelt is such a hero uh, is because she was one of the early leaders of the civil rights movement and did all kinds of important things for African-Americans during the Jim Crow era. <clears throat> so how did she respond when her husband interred Japanese-Americans on the West Coast in 1942? Well, hor she horrified and, and literally went. She was at that time serving as the first first lady to serve in an official government post. She was the co-director with Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia of New York. She was co-director with LaGuardia of the Office of Civil Defense, which had a new, a new office which had just been started. And in, in the event of Pearl Harbor in the crisis, she actually was the first um, official to address the American people by radio. She had a regular radio program on the Sunday of Pearl Harbor and, and, and fulfilled her duty to it without, without a break. Uh, and took to the air and and spoke extremely calmly, clearly, and directly to the American people with great um, with to, to great effect. FDR's um, address to the joint um, session of Congress the next morning is what we always remember. Of course, the, the 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 date which will live in infamy. But Eleanor the night before had calmed people, had given the story of what was really going on in the Pacific, um, and and how wide the attack, how widespread the attack was. Uh, she made clear as well. She flew in a plane to um, with LaGuardia to the West Coast directly where panic had taken over. And in this is now at least um, a, a month before anything like the executive order. But she saw at once that Japanese Americans were being unfairly and had been for months uh, unfairly treated. Uh, and she went to Japanese American communities to calm people, to to listen, to to be a, uh, a force for, for reason and, and rational um, response. And uh, she did as much as she could. It, it was a, um, I think it's, it, think about FDR, I mean, I, it, it has to be said uh, about FDR, and, and I think it's a, a context that's worth noting about his executive order interning the Japanese, which I, I personally, uh, or as a historical or biographical writer feel is probably the worst mistake he made and maybe one of the worst mistakes a president has ever made. Um, and I think it's some, I'm not sure FDR ever saw it that way or, or came around it because the war, of course, was not won by the time he died. But when, when he took office in 1932, um, uh, uh, Hoover had made the executive an absolutely impregnable um, uh, it, it, the, the executive was not something that you or I, I would have as much luck um, having Hoover take care of me as I would today getting the chairman of Verizon on the phone to talk about my bill. Right. I mean, that, that's how far away the president of the United States was from the from the, cit the individual citizen. FDR did this magic trick in 1933 
And he made himself and the executive branch of the government seem as close to you as if he was going to take care of your problems. And, and it was magic because people believed it and they felt that the government and that the president was was listening to them. And Eleanor, of course, was part of that, a big part of that, actually. But the, the she wasn't the only part of it. FDR himself did that. And so FDR's connection to the American people, to individuals in the American landscape was immense. And I think that both my book, because it focuses on Eleanor, but history in general has sh keeps shrinking FDR. And I think it's, it's something we have to bear in mind when we consider things like the Japanese internment, because he was as a, you know, as the soldier of freedom, as, as the, as the author of the four freedoms, as, as a, the worldwide figure with Churchill um, and, and of course with the Soviets facing Hitler and, and, and facing the, the greatest threat to freedom uh, the country had faced um, with the exception of the civil war, but this was entirely different. Of course, FDR's immensity was, was, um, was such that to, to trip him up historically on the one mistake he made, I think is, a, is an injustice to him. And it, and it's, it's a shame because it was such a bad mistake. And attorney general Biddle at the time pointed out what was worst about the mistake, uh, Biddle, as his attorney general, said, Mr. President, you can sign this executive order. You can pull the Japanese Americans for their own safety, as, as, as was the idea, um, out of um, their homes and away from their businesses. And you can strip them of their civil rights and you can put them in what amounts to concentration camps indefinitely. But what you and, and that's all going to be bad enough, but it will be understood because we have been attacked by the Empire of Japan and we cannot trust um, or we don't know who we can trust. But it, you have now success. You have now set a precedent, and and any president who comes after you will be able to point to this and say, we don't we we, we don't trust that group of people. We're going to do whatever we want with them, and that indeed is what took place in the last four years um, uh, with the with the policies on on the border with children. Um, FDR's internment uh, executive order was invoked several times in the last four years, so it, it does come to pass and. And yet, at the same time, it's a it's unique in FDR's history. It's unique. It's a unique, I think, a unique mistake. Um, and that's what I wanted to say about that. For my final question, Bob, I hope you don't mind if we go a couple of minutes. <laughs> I hope you're OK. We're already there. And nobody's leaving. So as long as David can stand this one. I'm fine. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine for a few more minutes. Sure. All right. Uh, David, Eleanor Roosevelt was a widow for 17 years until her death in November 1962. So what was the high point of her life post-Franklin? Uh, she created um, a an expectation, I think, that for herself, that life would be over after FDR and told um, a reporter as she was running to the train um, after leaving the White House, uh, she was running to a train after leaving the White House. She was back in New York and the reporter was asking her, you know, what next kind of thing. And people were always talking about Eleanor Roosevelt uh, from 1945 on as a potential vice president, as a senator, as a governor. They were always expecting her to, to take up the mantle uh, herself. And she said, no, no, the story is over and, and, and ran away. Truman convinced her to become the first 
delegate, the first United States delegate to the uh, gathering of the UN in London in 1946 that followed the UN charter. The United Nations uh, FDR had come up with a name for it uh, before his death, was a dream of, of uh, FDRs. It, it, it was also a dream of Eleanor's. It came out of uh, these two people who had uh, seen the failures of the League of Nations uh, after the First World War. Uh, I mean, the astonishment of these two people who FDR is a, in the First World War as an assistant secretary of the Navy turned to a friend and said, my, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a war president of the United States? Well, he got his wish. Be, beware what you, what, you, what you wish for. They had seen two world, war, world wars. They had seen what it had done. Um, the UN seemed to be a, 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 an instrument, a, a way in which um, we would ensure this had not, would not happen again. The advent of nuclear, um, of a nuclear weapon, of our holding the secret to the atomic bomb, um, gave us even greater responsibility, felt Eleanor, felt FDR even um, before he died. Um, so the UN was the great potential for the future. Um, it, it has disappointed, of course, as we now know, um, and has disappointed many who have worked within it. And, and it's, it's not, has not been the, 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 the institution that uh, Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt hoped it would be. It's had its strengths. But she did give a, um, uh, a part of her life to it that came to a climax and, and worthily uh, is known today as the greatest achievement of, of her life. And again, it's something that hasn't worked out entirely as she had hoped, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document that creates at the most basic level a definition of what a human being is and what a human being deserves universally across nations and around the world in all times of peace and war, uh, how to organize um, governments and societies around the idea of the individual and what the individual needs and what the individual deserves. Um, and in cases where rights are being taken away, how to resolve differences about what those rights will be. Uh, so the fundamental freedoms, the fundamental justice, the fundamental pursuit of happiness that we in our country have based, you know, we based our uh, system on was involved in concert with 55 other nations as Eleanor tried as the chairman of the commission that brought this document into being to work out and work out across cultural, cultural, religious lang line, and lines of differences in language. Uh, differences in meaning uh, as they hammered out a document that took its place at the time of its adoption by the UN in December of 1948, alongside documents like the Magna Carta and, and, and the US Constitution. In, in, its, in its fullness and in its completeness uh, uh, of, its, of what it had aimed to do, which was to make, 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 make uh, codify what, what a human being is and what a human being should have. So in that sense, that I think was her greatest post-war um, achievement, but really what she became was a presence. And I think, you know, we all, um, everyone here seems about the age of, to remember that there really wasn't another figure like her in the world after the war uh, who was crusading for peace and for people, helping people who yet weren't even discovered to be 
somebody who needed help. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt had, I mean, there was the queen of England as a, as a female figure. Um, and if you've seen the crown, you know, you sort of know what her levels of power were. Uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek was still around. Um, Madame de Gaulle was, was not much of a politician in her own right. Um, Hitler had had no wife, of course. Um, Stalin's wife was, was not heard from. There was really very few, there were very few women of the global scale that Eleanor Roosevelt achieved after the war who were figures and voices of international opinion and who could shape and mold people's ideas um, about. And the moment I mentioned earlier on on the program where, where she said she would rather be dead than have communist Soviets take over the United States was a typical example of the kind of thing that Eleanor Roosevelt would surprise people by saying what she really felt and really meant. And she always meant what she said and, and said what she meant and, and was very straight in her column, which people thought of at the time as something that would appear on the women's pages. If you look at it actually through our eyes now, you see it's, it's plain prose, not meant to impress, but to inform. It's, it's very intimate in a certain way. It's like someone, a friend talking to you, but it's also a sort of plain style is high style. It's a lot like actually like U Ulysses Grant's memoirs of the war. Um, it's, it's, it's simple, plain American language that is telling you what it is you need to know on that given day. Uh, and I think her life was lived on this day-to-day -day level in the present always. And it's the why she kept being relevant and why she kept moving forward. Um, the Duke of Wellington was the guy who said something like, do, do the things of the day in the day. You know, that's how you, that's how you get the war won. That's how you do this. You, you do what you need to do today and you do it. And she did so much in a day. Um, her, the metrics of her travels, of her letters, of her, of her writings, of the people she saw, the things she did are quite astonishing. But it was always because she focused now on what was here right this minute in that very noticing, very intense way. And I think it's the, you know, it's sort of the seven habits of successful people. It's, it's the doing what, you, doing what you need to do now at this moment and do it and just do it. And she was that person. And that's in a way why her quotes and her aphorisms are remain useful to people. Um, I think she was a, she was practical. She was um, imaginative and she was a visionary in certain ways about how people should live, could live their lives if they live their best life. And if they lived according to their noblest instincts. Well, thank you, David. Uh, I hope all of you have heard enough to want to go out and get this wonderful book. Uh, as Gage Pritchard said, it does read like a novel. You've heard enough about an amazing life, an impactful life. She's always regarded as our most influential first lady. And uh, this book is, is, is the greatest biography of her that's ever been written. Eleanor Roosevelt is universally recognized as the most influential first lady in American history. And the story of her life has never been presented as well as David Michaelis does in his new book. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.